Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And by Doohop. Doohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn more at doohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I want to wish everyone a happy Flag Day. Flag Day marks the adoption of the Stars and Stripes as the official United States national flag, though people in the airline business sometimes get confused and think it commemorates National Flag Carriers Day. I joke about that, Ben Baldanza, but there are fewer and fewer true flag carriers around the world as new competition and old problems make it more and more difficult for legacy airlines to survive. Food for thought on Flag Day. There's always an airline angle, Scott. <laughs> this week I was at the National Cathedral for an event for my son's school. And as you might imagine, there's a bunch of fixed pews there. And a friend of ours sat right behind me. And I said, don't worry, I won't recline on you. And she <laughs> laughed and said, you're always thinking about airlines, Ben. <laughs> so happy Flag Day to you too, Scott. And we're happy Flag Carrier Day to all the remaining flag carriers out there. We're going to talk today to the CEO and founder of a very creative company that is boosting revenue for lots of airlines, and every airline needs that, of course. The company flags flights, lots of Flag Day references in this show, that are heavily booked and could sell last-minute seats at a higher price. They reach out a few days before departure to lower fare customers and offer a bonus for changing flights, opening up seats to sell at higher fares without bumping any customers. It works more often than not, and both the customer and the airline are happy. We think it's worth flagging, and we think you're going to enjoy the interview. First, Ben, there's a lot of news to run up the flagpole. Let's start with American Airlines' fascinating change in attitude and strategy toward business travel. You and I have talked before about how American was cutting corporate sales staff and pushing small and medium-sized business into direct booking without corporate discounts. And you and I, along with our friends Jay Sorensen and Charlie Lioka, we're out there early with estimates of the long-term change in business travel, estimates that have very accurately panned out. American strategy very much confirms the changes we saw coming. This past week, Allison Sider of the Wall Street Journal had a terrific front page story detailing what the journal called American's radical plan to reinvent business travel. Among the unspoken undercurrents here, I think, is that the plan is clearly the work of Vasu Raja, American's chief commercial officer, and his future might well be tied to the success or failure of the new strategy. Vasu is seen as a potential heir apparent to Robert Isom. It's early to be talking about Isom's successor, 
since he only became CEO about 15 months ago. But this is a bold step. And while it's not sink or swim for American, it well could be sink or swim for Vasu. It's worth noting that Delta and others are licking their chops at the possibility of winning more business travel from American. Delta has already been winning that war, and its unflagging devotion to business travel carries through to reliability, amenities, facilities, and route network. Just look at how Delta is winning both New York and Los Angeles. An American was already struggling to hang on to corporate clients in those two biggest U.S. markets. The Delta flag is flying high there after major construction projects on both coasts. What do you think, Ben? Is American smart to reduce sales expenses and stop discounting business travel tickets it would probably sell anyway at full price? Or is its flag flying at half staff? I'm going to bet on Vasu for this one, Scott. I think it's smart, but not as a wholesale strategy. The reality of the business today, Scott, as you know, is that the market is divided up. If you live and work in Dallas and fly to and from Dallas for all your business, it doesn't matter how good Delta is. They're not going to be able to service you the way American can. And the same in reverse if you're in Atlanta. So for the cities like that, I think Vasu's strategy makes sense, and I think it's something that Delta and United are likely to copy, but probably without as much fanfare as American did, because you really don't have to. I'll remind you of something when I worked for Continental Airlines a long time ago in the mid-90s. We were obviously had a hub in Houston that is now United's hub. And at the time, Enron, before they were disgraced, was a big company in Houston and flew a lot. And if Enron were to have created an airline, they would have created Continental because we flew everywhere Enron needed to go. And over a 10-year period, There were years that we had a corporate deal with Enron and years that we didn't. And the interesting thing, Scott, is in the years we did not have a deal, our revenue from Enron was 10% higher (laughs) than the years when we did have a deal. (laughs) So it proves Vasu's point that in Dallas, in Charlotte, and probably Miami, American doesn't need the same approach to corporate sales as they've always had. But that doesn't mean that they can't do that in Kansas City or Raleigh or Greensboro or St. Louis or places that can connect through any hub. So I think if American's really smart, which I think they are, They're going to follow this strategy in their hubs where they're likely to win the revenue because of their schedule dominance, but be just as proactive 
and just as relationship-based in the places where they really have to compete with United and Delta for the business traveler. So I think it's a smart strategy American is doing, but if they try to do it everywhere, I think Delta and United will pick their pockets in the middle-side cities that no one serves with any kind of dominance. And what about New York and L.A. and Chicago, the three biggest cities? Uh, you know, American seems really vulnerable in those cities. And in Los Angeles, Delta's got its facilities in order. American's still uh, working through that. Um, but Delta's really taking market share there and creating a hub at LaGuardia and renovating the facility there uh, has really allowed Delta to become New York's airline um, with the JFK uh, presence as, as well, uh, at least for big businesses. Um, in Chicago, American may be losing ground to United. So it, it seems to me you, you're vulnerable if you become weak in the three biggest markets of the country. I totally agree. If you notice when I said where American could do this, mm -hmm. I didn't mention L.A., Chicago, yeah. or New York, because American is weaker in all three cities. They have always been smaller than United in Chicago, and they've always had a challenge in Chicago, and neither airline can get big enough in Chicago to push out the other. So that's going to be a super competitive market for business travelers. And you can't forget Southwest at Midway mm. because for a lot of short haul flights from Chicago, Southwest is a great business option also. In New York, American clearly saw the alliance with JetBlue as a way to try to recapture what they had lost in New York. A judge has now said, you can't do that anymore. So we're going to have to see what the reaction from American in New York really is as we go forward. And in LA, I think the horses left the barn. Mm. If you remember that phrase, yeah, uh, I think, or, or maybe we should say the flag has been taken down off the pole. <laughs> yeah, that's probably right for this week. That's right, but I think it's too late for American in LA. I think Delta has played the winning hand there for business travelers domestically and maybe some internationally out of LA. You know, Scott, the other business travel news last week was Scott Kirby declaring a business travel recession. He said businesses are in recession mode, even as consumers are spending heavily on travel. He basically agreed with Vasu and American that the era of road warrior is over, at least for now. Business travelers just aren't taking as many trips, period. Remember, there have been a lot of layoffs in the tech world and certainly pressure on regional banks. Andrew Nacella, who is United's chief commercial officer, 
said the business travel recovery has plateaued at about 75 to 80 percent of 2019 levels. That's right where we predicted, Scott, back in 2019. Yeah. But planes are still full of leisure travelers. We'll see how long that lasts once we get to the fall. If everyone remembers, last year, some of us, including me, were expecting a big drop-off in the fall, but that didn't happen. There was a very robust fall last year. We'll see if that continues this year. If the economy slows, as some people predict, and consumers stop spending freely, at least on airline tickets, we could see a lot of fare cutting to fill seats amid weak demand and lots of capacity put out there. Or we'll find out that air travel really is a necessity for people and far more resilient economically than it was in the past. I'm betting on resilient, Ben. I just think people have a need to go. Companies have found they don't need to send people out as much as before. Technology and better communications offers lots of more efficient ways to stay in touch in many instances. Not all, but in many. But people do have a need to be on the move, and that desire will drive travel purchases. If the company won't send me to Boston or Bozeman or Barcelona, I'll go myself. One other news item I wanted to flag, Ben. Delta said it is about a year away from offering the ability to strap down a motorized wheelchair in the cabin rather than making someone transfer to a seat and store the mobility device in the cargo hold. This is huge for both airlines and the mobility challenge community. It's hard to handle motorized wheelchairs. They're heavy and delicate and they get broken. And when they get broken, it's a disaster for the person who relies on that device to move around. It's also very expensive. Airlines pay millions in repairs and replacement. Last year, U.S. airlines mishandled more than 11,000 wheelchairs and scooters. Those are the ones mishandled. It's nearly 2% of all those loaded on, onto planes. And 2% is a pretty high failure rate. So this is a big deal. The problem has been the chairs are often too heavy for the cabin floor structure and can't be secured to meet safety standards. They also may not fit in the footprint of a coach seat. This prototype that Delta's come up with would be a coach seat in the first bulkhead row that would fold up for a wheelchair. If there's no wheelchair user on a flight, it functions like a normal seat. This is a long way from a finished product. Delta says another 18 months of development and testing and certification will be required, but it's very promising. I wrote about this issue when I was at the Wall Street Journal, and I was so moved by the high rate of breakage and the severe consequences for the powered chair user. My father-in-law was in a powered chair, and travel became impossible for him. To be able to drive a chair onto a plane and secure it properly without the airline losing revenue by giving up seats would be a fabulous improvement. I agree, Scott. I think this is a great initiative by Delta. I think the issue is going to be who gets to put their chair there. Yeah. 
I think it's going to be so demanded Mm -hmm. that they're going to, you know, basically the relatively few spots they'll have to lock the chairs in are going to get booked very early. And people might be frustrated and say, hey, I had a fly on this date so my chair could lock in. But that's a great problem to have in the sense that it will prove that Delta's working on a strategy that really is demanded by the marketplace. And it's interesting, too. uh, Delta said it's developed this at a subsidiary and it's willing to sell it to other airlines. Uh, So this could really be a solution for the industry. Um, They also said there will be two seats on each uh, flight, one on uh, the aisle seat in the first row um, on both sides. Uh, But obviously, that's not much capacity. But if you see this spread uh, throughout the industry, it could really be a nice solution. I agree. And for things like this, or like the autism room in Pittsburgh Mm -hmm. that our friend Christina Casotis did. Those are things that should propagate throughout the industry. Mm -hmm. So great for Delta to do the R&D or through their company do the R&D, figure out how it works, and then offer it to the industry because All you have to do is go back and listen to our talk with Mike Mm Swiatek and know that the industry potentially misses out on a bunch of travelers, too, because we don't make the industry as accessible as we could. And this is a terrific effort. Yeah. And speaking of revolutionary air travel change, we want to thank our sponsor, DoHop which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Duop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Doohop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. And we want to thank our sponsor, Pratt & Whitney a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable, world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. We sincerely thank Duhop and Pratt. Now let's talk about one of the most important topics for airlines, maximizing revenue on each flight. It's always a challenge, and even small improvements can make big differences at airlines. That's why we are excited to talk 
to Azim Barodawala, co-founder and CEO of Volantio. I first ran into Azim years back at a conference when Volantio was just getting started. We're both Duke graduates. Now Alaska Airlines is not only using Volantio, but also has invested in the company. Volantio has an impressive list of customers and an interesting mix of low-cost startups and established international carriers like Qantas, Iberia, and Japan Airlines. So it's a pleasure to welcome Azim to Airlines Confidential. Ben and I had the chance to talk with him when we were at Aviation Festival Americas in Miami Beach recently. We're thrilled to have with us today Azim Barotawala, who is CEO of Volantio. Uh, Volantio is, a, uh, I think, a fascinating company doing interesting things, and so I'm excited to hear more about it. Uh, Azim is a veteran of uh, Boston Consulting Group, travel and hospitality. Uh, he, he worked for a time uh, with Jetstar in Melbourne and, uh, and then tech startups in Silicon Valley and is having good success with Volantio. So we're going to learn more. Tell us, Azim, first of all, welcome. And, and tell us what uh, Volantio is and how it works. Thanks uh, so much, Scott. It's, uh, it's great to be here. You know, airlines have this challenge where they have a certain number of flights that are consistently peak. What I mean by peak is that, uh, you know, if they could just get a little bit more capacity on those peak flights, they could sell them at a very high yield. Um, and this is just the nature of the aviation industry. And they also have uh, off-peak flights that have space available. So what Volantio has been able to do is to find a way to incentivize guests on peak flights far in advance of departure to essentially trade back their seat on that high-value flight and move to the lower-value flight for a benefit. And the really exciting thing here is that everybody wins because the airline is able to reacquire a very valuable seat and resell it Imagine they can require a seat uh, and sell it for $500. They move them to a flight that was going to fly empty anyway, and they give the passenger a $100 benefit to do so. So now the airline's made $400, and the passenger's made $100, uh, and really all that's happened is that we're monetizing customers' flexibility. And what Volantio does is we facilitate all of this behind the scenes. We detect the price anomalies and the arbitrage opportunities. We process the moves of the passengers. And we, um, and we ultimately issue the compensation. So really, the passenger wins, the airline wins, and, um, and ultimately the airline gets to fly more passengers uh, on, uh, and better utilize its, its network. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating and sounds like you've found a solution to some of the problems with revenue management who can only forecast so well. And it's very common for airlines to be in a position where they wish at some point in the sales process they hadn't made a sale they've already made. So can you tell us which airlines are using Volantio now and if you've been able to expand beyond the airline industry? Yeah, that's a great question, Ben, and thank you for it. Yeah, so we work with a number of carriers today globally. Uh, we work with Alaska Airlines, Volaris, we work with Qantas, we work with a number of carriers in India, Vueling in Spain, Iberia. So, you know, really across the business model of low-cost carrier and full-service carrier uh, and across regions as well. 
And we have expanded outside of the airline industry. And we've actually expanded use cases within the airline industry. And I'd like to talk about both of those quickly. So outside of the industry, if you think about any capacity-constrained industry, they can benefit from a tool like this. So our first non-airline customer was, was Disney. So Disney in New York for the new Amsterdam Theater, um, ha, you know, that's where they play Aladdin. And uh, you know, they came to us and said, hey, Azim, you know, if I had an extra balcony, could just fit an extra balcony in, every Friday night I would sell it out. Problem is I can't do that. So what we did was we used our technology to move passengers with flexibility in their plans from a Friday night show to a Sunday matinee that typically doesn't sell out we give somebody who may be sitting with a family of four up in the balcony a, uh, an upgrade to you know, the sixth row orchestra on Sunday if they move, and now Disney can sell more seats on the Friday night show. So essentially what they're doing is they're expanding the available capacity for sale, just like an airline would, at their highest peak, you know, most expensive day. So they generate more yield, um, and they're filling their off peaks. So they're just better utilizing their assets. So that's one use case in the non-airline industry. The other amazing use case for airlines, and Alaska is doing this, um, Avianca is doing this, a number of other carriers that we work with, is using our platform, our ability to move passengers to enable more overbooking and better management of overbooking. Because if you can move people, you can start using that to better solicit volunteers and actually push overbooking levels higher. And it's unfortunate that many airlines today don't overbook in my mind, because it's not a matter of them being worried about overbooking, it's about how you manage overbooking. And actually you can generate a lot of incremental profit by overbooking if you just manage it in the right way. That's really interesting because we're in Miami at the um, Aviation Americas Festival, and I'm flying home tonight and already got an offer from American to change flights um, with a, with sort of an eye-popping, it said minimum $600, and uh, you could put in for $900 or, or $1,100. And the problem with that offer was there's no guarantee of what flight I would end up on. Would yeah. it be the same day? Would it be the next day? What, uh, whatever. So it's not a really attractive offer no. because of all that uncertainty. What you're doing is offering, hey, take this flight instead so I know exactly what the deal is. It's really interesting. How does Volanio get paid? Is it a percentage of the additional revenue that an airline gets or, or how does it work? Yeah, so as I mentioned, we have two core use cases, moving passengers for revenue reasons, which typically happens seven days before a departure or earlier. And the reason you're moving those passengers is because you want to resell the seat. We also have this other product that deals with better managing uh, overbooking by better soliciting volunteers. So for the first product, the revenue product, the way it typically would work is that we get paid a small fixed rate to manage the system, and then it's it's essentially success-based. So it's a percentage of the profit that the airline makes off of using the, the platform. Keep in mind, we track the profit for that, that product down to the passenger level. So we know if every single move was profitable. For the overbooking product, it's pretty much a flat fee per month that the airline pays us to manage the system. That makes some sense to me, and I can see why airlines would be interested in you. But it's not just airlines that are interested, it's investors too. And you have an interesting collection, including JetBlue Ventures, Amadeus, and IAG, the parent of British Airways, 
Iberia, and Qantas. Did all these investors come in after the pandemic when things were looking better, or did they stick with you through the pandemic? I imagine the pandemic was really tough (laughs) because not only no flights with high demand, but no flights in some cases and thus no revenue. Uh, yeah, yeah, the pandemic was tough. So, uh, you know, Amadeus, IAG, Qantas, and JetBlue Ventures all came in prior to the pandemic. So they invested at the end of 2017. But Alaska Airlines came in after the pandemic, interestingly enough. And the reason that Alaska Airlines came in after the pandemic was because they used our product for four years and they really saw the value in the product. And based on all of the value that they had seen, which was in excess of $20 million on an annualized basis, they decided to invest. And that value has only gone up since then. So they said, hey, this is, a, this is an exciting product. We want to have a part of it. So it's fun to have a lot of different airlines. You know, some of them um, in some areas are competitors, um, but that's okay. You know, and you know, they've been providing a huge amount of uh, value to us um, as investors. So who are your competitors in this space? Are, are there others doing the same thing or similar things? Um, you know, there's a number of companies that have, like startups, that have worked on this uh, similar idea. But I would say the biggest competitors that we find are typically the airlines themselves who want to try to do an internal build of this. There are some airlines who do successfully try to build this themselves. But what we find generally is that airlines have a lot of other priorities internally and that at the end of the day, they typically make the decision that their limited technology resources are better placed working on other things as opposed to trying to build technology that's already been built and refined by companies like ours. Mm-hmm. The other main advantage is that you know, we have already processed probably between 15 and 20 million passenger moves. And every time we move a passenger, we learn something. And all of that machine learning ultimately enables us to have a pretty defensible moat um, that makes it very hard for customers and for other companies to be able to replicate. Because we know a lot about what you need to offer, what alternatives you need to offer, how much, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to get somebody to move. That seems so smart to me. Azim, where did this idea come from? It seems like it would have naturally come from someone with a rich revenue management background, but you came from BCG. So how did you identify this problem and come up with the creativity for this kind of solution? Um, Yeah, uh, you know, I I mean, when I left BCG, I went to go work for an airline. I worked for a low cost carrier, Jetstar, for two years. And honestly, I I wish I could say that um, that my superpower is coming up with amazing ideas. I think my superpower is listening to other people who have amazing ideas and trying to get them to become reality. Um, and in this case, it was definitely the latter. My colleague from Jetstar, uh, Kevin Gurr, who went on to become the VP of Revenue Management um, at Virgin and then Alaska Airlines, um, he came to me and he said, hey, Azim, this is a common challenge that I have every summer flights on Alaska within our network. We, if we could just get some more capacity, we know we could sell them out. Um, and he suggested to us that we look at this idea um, and, and see if there was something there. 
And then we, we did. We took the idea. We ran with it. We executed on it. But I give full credit where it's due. Um, he's our chief commercial officer today, but he, he really um, originated the idea. In fact, I still have the notebook where I wrote down the idea, and I wrote, this is a big idea, and I underlined it like four <laughs> times. <laughs> so how do you get airlines to let you start moving their customers around? Um, it, it sort of seems to me like uh, there could be a lot of damage to clean up if, if things go wrong, but you're actually the ones handling the customers and communicating with the customers, right? We are, but it's white labeled. So it, it comes uh, on behalf of the carrier. We just power it in the background. So yeah, I, I, I mean, I think getting airlines to trust us to do this was difficult at the beginning when we didn't have a lot of customers. So part of the reason that airlines trust us today is because we have a pretty rich stable of customers who already trust us to work with them. And uh, the other thing is obviously we, we, we go through very rigorous testing processes before we would launch anything to, to, a, to a guest. And, and in fact, I mean, we do other creative solutions. Like sometimes we, we do surveys with an airline's own passengers to show an airline that their passengers would be interested in something like this. That's how we got Disney to work with us. I did a huh. survey of people who had attended Broadway shows. Literally, it, it cost me less than $200 to do a survey. And we showed it to Disney and we said, hey, look, people would be interested in this idea. And then that got them thinking and we, we started working together with them. You just have to be creative when you're a startup. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Azim, we're in a period with high load factors and very strong demand and yet somewhat constrained capacity. So it seems to me this is sort of a sweet spot for you because it should be easier to find people to move or is it a problem for you because it's harder for you to find places for them to go? No, I, I think it is the former. The thing about high load factors, I think the averages can be deceiving sometimes because I'm sure as you well know, right? Um, just because an average uh, load factor might be 90%, that doesn't mean that every flight is you know, 90%. It means that a lot of flights are 100%, but then a lot of flights might be 80 or 70%, right? And um, so all we're doing is finding opportunities to better smooth out demand across all services, right? Um, and it's incredible how flexible people will be if you give them the courtesy of a little bit of notice to let them know that they have some options. Um, in fact, so one of the greatest benefits of our platform is the ability for airlines to develop better customer relationships with their guests, you know, and show their guests that they're actually thinking about them and bringing them with something of value that literally doesn't cost them anything. So how will AI change this business? What, what do you see as the future of generating additional incremental revenue at airlines with AI? I mean, it's a, uh, that, that's, a, that's an interesting topic. I mean, I, I think that how we're using AI and, and, and I would just, I would say more broadly machine learning is to ensure that our offers are getting smarter and smarter with the guests, right? Uh, to the extent that we can, right? So we use non-personal um, information, just characteristic information to, to understand, hey, you know, these types of passengers are more likely to accept these types of benefits to move, right? So based on a certain, we know that this is a guest who is a, you know, top tier frequent flyer, 
you know, they may, you know, rather than getting you know, an additional 10,000 miles, which are not going to be worth a lot to them because they probably have a million miles, let's offer them some kind of a different incentive. Maybe you offer them a Uber ride to the airport or Uber Black, or you offer them um, some kind of, uh, you know, a, an enhanced benefit, the kind of thing that they wouldn't normally get. So I think AI and machine learning is going to enable us to be smarter about the types of offers that we make. So it's not just a straight up voucher for future travel or an upgrade on the flight or something. It's something that is much more meaningful to the person, to the individual. So we know like say, hey, you, Scott, you know, maybe you're flying back and, you know, I could give you 20,000 miles, but maybe... Uh, maybe you want the empty, the next seat. I mean, you're the you're the middle seat guy, right? <laughs> maybe you want to be on the aisle seat with a middle seat empty. I don't know. <laughs> that that's the ideal, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, used to used to be when you could travel with middle seat empty. It, yeah. it, uh, the survey showed everything was better. Uh, the food yeah. tasted better. The flight was more on time. The flight attendants were friendlier. Yeah. Uh, but um, but those days are gone. Yeah, I know. Azim, anything else about Volantio? No, you know what, I think, um, you know, I just think that this is a super exciting space that we're in and that we have an opportunity to really transform all fixed capacity industries, not just airlines. You think about airlines, think about live entertainment, theater, even places like restaurants, anywhere else that's constrained, you know, we see a market for, you know, for what we're doing. But we got to walk before we run and, um, and we're super excited to be, I grew up as a huge fan of just airlines. I was the guy who f- opened the magazine to the back and would just be reading, you know, the, the airline uh, route networks and stuff. So uh, this is my first love and I'm really excited to be doing this work. Oh, it's fantastic. Good luck with it all. It's great to have you on the podcast and look forward to hearing more about all that you do. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Azim. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Thanks again to Azim for a great introduction to Volantio and its unique way to squeeze in a bit more revenue out of flights. You know, as a long-term revenue management guy, Scott, you don't want to admit companies like this should exist because revenue management is just so perfect at forecasting and saving the right seats. But we all know that's not the reality, and every airline finds itself at times with flights that are more booked than the current demand environment suggests they should have. So great work by Volantio to create a real practical system to address this. Scott, in this week's mailbag, Ben from Oakland wanted to elaborate on our discussion about luxury airlines. You know that I was so taken with that discussion that I wrote an article for Forbes about the reasons why luxury airlines don't generally succeed. Ben from Oakland, who is president and general counsel of Startup Arrow, says, Great show. I haven't missed an episode, but I have a beef. This week you addressed the listener question, why no luxury airline startups? You both were fairly negative on the idea and listed all the reasons why you believe they don't exist. But we do exist. Luxury airline startups are not a myth. Just like Ben proved that it was a great business model to go 
after the legacies from the back of the cabin. We believe you can attack them from the front as well, as long as the costs are right. Aeroflies ERJ 135 with first class seats from private terminals at Dallas Love Field and Van Nuys Airport in Los Angeles to Aspen and Los Cabos. Technically, it's not an airline, but a scheduled charter operator. I believe that means a 135 operator, Scott. We've talked about scheduled charter before with JSX, and it is an interesting space to watch. I'm not sure these niche operators can scale into fully-fledged airlines, and time will tell if they can be financially successful. But thanks for bringing Arrow to our attention, Ben, and we'll be watching you closely. We will definitely be watching closely. I just think it's it's fascinating. It's fascinating how uh, Ben framed the issue about about you showing you could attack the legacies from the back of the cabin, and they're trying to attack from the front of the cabin. And what strikes me is that the the advantage the legacies have is the back of the cabin can essentially subsidize the front of the cabin. Uh, so a legacy airline may be able to produce that first-class seat at much lower cost than an all-first-class carrier can. You know, that's right, Scott. And it gets back to our earlier discussion about American strategy. It very well may be the arrow succeeds flying from the airports it's flying to the big destinations it's going to. But the reality is that product is more than what is just on the airplane itself. I don't doubt that the experience on Aero is terrific in the airport environment and once you're on board in their nice comfy seats. But they don't have the scope advantage that a big airline has. They don't have the frequent flyer base. They don't have the corporate deals. And all those things weigh in to what is the best airline for me as a business traveler to fly. Right, exactly. And I think you're right about the cities. Uh, I have friends in Dallas who are complaining about uh, the fares between Dallas and Aspen this summer, $1,500 for a coach ticket. Um, so I, I think anybody could be making money flying between Dallas and Aspen this summer. But we'll, we'll watch it closely and we'll see. And we have a couple questions from Joe in California. First, why does the 737-700 make up most of the Southwest fleet? And second, why did the A319 make up most of the Spirit and Frontier fleet at one time? Ben, tell us why. Well, there are two different answers to this. Southwest flies the 737-700 because it's such a great airplane for what they do. It's an airplane that gets up and down a lot in a day easily. It's sized right, and they buy them in enough volume that they got great pricing from Boeing. And by flying such a big fleet of that one plane, it helps Southwest keep their costs low. 
with singular pilot training, singular parts for their mechanics, and mechanic training. And it's just a really smart way for that airline to execute its business model and a plane that makes sense for them. So it doesn't surprise me. The MAX, which Southwest is bringing in, I'm sure is causing some complication at Southwest because it really is a different airplane, even though it says it's a 737. About the 319, that's a completely different issue. At the time, Spirit and Frontier were starting to sort of propagate their business models. Airbus was in a position that it had sold the more efficient A320 to other airlines, and it wasn't willing to sell to Spirit and Frontier the A320 for the price that it had sold it to more established airlines. But they made really powerful offers on the 319. So both airlines bought the 319 because they could get it cheaper. And before the advent of the NEO, I know that sounds like it's a long time ago, but we all know that wasn't that long ago. Before the advent of the NEO, the A319 could fly flights that the A320 with its original engines couldn't make. For example, Spirit couldn't fly from Fort Lauderdale to Los Angeles with a COA320 or from Fort Lauderdale to Lima, Peru. But the A319 could do those because it basically had the same engine, but with the smaller fuselage was lower weight. So it made sense for those airlines at the time they were taking the 319, both for schedule growth and price. But both airlines, as you know now, have invested heavily in the larger A320 and A321, and the economics of those bigger planes will ultimately make the 319s go away at some point. Yeah, and in Frontier's case, the uh, the ultra long range A three twenty one, which uh, which uh, range uh, we forget about range when we just look at at seats. That's that's a very interesting history. It's worth noting that Southwest has been taking delivery of only Max eight aircraft for some time. That's because the the new version of the seven hundred, the Max seven, still hasn't been certified by the FAA. So the number of 800s and MAX 8 airplanes and the number of Dash 700s are almost even now at about 400 apiece in the 800 airplane Southwest fleet. Southwest is not happy about that. The the 700 or the MAX 7 has 32 fewer seats than the larger airplane. And in a lot of markets, Southwest doesn't need those 32 seats. When you have more seats, you end up discounting prices to fill the seats. I I remember back in my early days, Bob Crandall saying, you can't have an airplane that's too small uh, because if there's a shortage of seats, you can charge more for them and make the flight more profitable. 
Southwest has been taking the bigger airplane because it needs airplanes, but it really wants more of the Max 7 smaller airplane. It would like to be 60-40 in the ratio of 700s to 800s rather than 50-50. That's all for Airlines Confidential this week. Time to lower our flag. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.